Thanks, Claire. Good day, everyone. <laughs> I'm overwhelmed by being underwhelmed. Good day, everyone. Oh, my goodness, that's better. You used all your energy on Phil's game. I get it. That's a great game. Gee whiz. Um, I'm really excited to be here today. I'm Dave, uh, one of the pastors here, uh, and we're going to continue thinking about this question, how do you know you're a Christian? Uh, how do you have that confidence uh, in your faith? Uh, we began to think about that last week in 2 Corinthians 13 as we finished it off, uh, and then we'll be thinking about the topic as well uh, next week as well. It's a huge one, uh, one with huge consequences uh, for us all. The way I want us to begin to think about the topic, though, is to consider the theme of expectations. Expectations. How do you deal with other people's expectations? I remember meeting my future father-in-law for the first time, and um, it was a terrifying prospect. A variety of reasons. Uh, my uh, girlfriend, now wife Sam, had told me several things about him. He was a Qantas pilot for forty years, jumbo jet, you know, a serious kind of guy. Um, uh, he um, he looked like George Clooney. Um, I hadn't seen a photo, but I've been told there's this pilot who looks like George Clooney. That's him. He's not, you know, he's, uh, he doesn't have a huge sense of humour, those type of things. He's a serious guy, a good guy, but a serious kind of guy. Um, add to that my own anxieties and fears. I, now, this might surprise you, but I'm a little bit older than Sam. Does that shock you? Of course, some of you are surprised. That's very nice. Um, and I, before I was a Christian, I was divorced. I had a couple of kids from the previous relationship. And, you know, I was also very self-conscious about my tattoos uh, and I, I remember just feeling like, oh my goodness, here's the anxiety. What does he want from me? What do I need to do to be accepted by this guy? So uh, we went out for dinner and I tried to find the, um, uh, the fanciest long sleeve shirt I could, which was a woolen jumper. I don't know why that's funny. That's not the funny bit. Just wait. You're laughing at that. Just wait. So we get to this restaurant and it was a Belgian restaurant. A Belgian restaurant. And I walk in and it was as if I walked into the furnace in the middle of hell. Okay, it was so hot. Turns out the Belgians have open fires in their restaurants, all the ones I've been to anyway, and so there was this open, it was like 700 degrees in there. Have you ever seen anyone have sweat patches through wool before? <laughs> now that is a significant achievement. You don't see sheep with sweat patches. You know, this was a big, <gasps> I reach my hand up, shake his hand, and I knock his beer over straight away. <laughs> We then sit around and spiral, and half an hour later, you know, I'm running out of things to say. And so Sam decides, where is she? Where are you, mate? Oh, she is, she's hiding. Sam decides, oh, I'll lighten the mood by telling Dad something funny about Dave that'll make everyone laugh, ha, ha, ha. So he goes, Dad, guess what I just discovered? Dave can't drive a manual. (laughs) A couple of things to say there, ladies. If your husband, boyfriend, father... If they can't drive a manual, they know that. They're ashamed of that, okay? It's a thing. They'll pretend that they can, but they always avoid it. It's a thing. Uh, I had confessed this deep secret to Sam, and, you know. Now, I want to say also, the second thing is to say, I actually now can drive a manual. I, uh, I learned at the age of 38. So, um, and he looked at me, George Clooney, the pilot, like, what is... You know, this guy. Later, as Sam was driving me home in her manual car, um, <laughs> I looked at her and I said, Sam, why? Why would you say that? It's so to me, why? This is a man who can drive a plane. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, This is true. She goes, 
Dave, it's fly a plane. It's not drive a plane. As if I wasn't making a pun, as if I was so stupid about driving that I didn't even know that distinction. Anyway. At the very core of expectations is the question, what do they want from me? What do I need to do? What do I need to do to be accepted? A new job, new school, new, new opportunities, new people. What do I need to do to be accepted here? Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered, what does God want from you? And not just you as the individual you. What does God want from us? You know, this question is actually right at the heartbeat of every religion in the world. You ever thought about that? Every religion in the world bases what it does around its attempts to answer this question. In fact, it bases its behaviour, its activity around its claims of authority around this question. So it says, do this, do that, you know, behave like this, do this, in order to be acceptable to God, the gods, spirits, whatever, get the good thing, whatever it is. It's at the very core of every religion. Yet what's fascinating is when you take a step back and you, and you, you survey uh, religiosity, uh, spirituality, you look at the hundreds of thousands of religions, if you can, or even the millions of philosophies and ideas about spirituality and those type of things, what you realise, and this is utterly true, is that in reality there's, there's only two ways you can answer this question. 99.9% of religions offer one option. But there's only one that disagrees with them. And that one is Christianity. Christianity, the more you look into it, the more you become more and more rare, is utterly unique. Utterly unique. And not just unique in the way that every religion is unique from each other. I mean unique um, from all other religions. Christianity stands alone in how it answers this question. And so what I want us to do today um, is get to the bottom of how we can work out, one way or the other, what God actually does want from us. Um, to spend time thinking through how we can know whether we've done what he wants from us. Um, and then think through, well, if we do know, if we can know, what the answer is, well, how does it affect the life that we live? How does it change our Christianity? Or maybe if you're not a Christian, how does that change how I think about Christianity? So the way I want to do that is, is pretty simple, I hope. What we're going to do is we're going to look at um, the Bible's perspective on humanity. What the Bible, what God, what Christianity says about you. Then we're going to look at what um, the Bible says about God's expectations of you. And then try and sort of piece those together like a jigsaw and, and see what we come up with there. Um, now the way we're going to do that is spending most of our time in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, kit that open in front of you. Um, Romans chapter 3 is, uh, can I say, it has been a delight to write the sermon this week. Not that Romans 3 is delightful. Because <laughs> what it says is pretty full on. Uh, but it's an incredibly rich and powerful chapter. Um, uh, for us to look at. So Romans chapter 3 is where we're going. And what I want to do at first is, as I said, answer the question, what is God's perspective on you? What does God think about you? Well, Romans 3, like a shovel to the face, uh, is not lacking in um, clarity. Come with me to verse 10. And let me read to you verse 10 to verse 12. And keep in mind, this is God's perspective on you, on you, on you, all of us. As it is written... 3 verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now the word um, to focus on there is that first one, which is righteous. What is righteousness? Uh, That's a term that's a legal uh, expression. It means the same as justified. Uh, It means pure, upright, without fault, without charge. It's not like, oh, um, we'll let you get away with it. It's, oh, I'm without fault. Um, that's what it means. Now, that's a problem for us because the passage is making it very clear that even though that's what it means and even though that's what we may think about ourselves, none of us are righteous. We're worthless, and that word is actually the same um, expression that they use in the ancient world about milk going off. We're worthless. Um, We're beyond use. We are not good. Now, what's the cause of our unrighteousness and our badness, our worthlessness? Well, verse 11 tells us, there is no one who seeks God. Verse 23, famous verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the cause of our unrighteousness? All of us. It's sin. And sin is greatly, wonderfully defined for us in verse 23. Falling short of God's glory, falling short of God's expectation, falling short of his standards of how he tells us to live. Now here's what I want you to notice. Who does this involve? Who does this entail? Who is this speaking about? Verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. No one righteous, not even one, no one, no one, not even one, all, all, no one. It's the person currently sitting to your left. Don't look at them. And you're right. But it's also the person sitting in your chair or in your shirt listening to me. It's all of us. No exceptions. No exceptions. Now that's bad news, isn't it? It's confronting news. And it might be very possibly very, a very different perspective as what you thought Christianity said about people. You might be here going, oh, this is what I'm coming to on a Sunday morning? Or maybe someone invited you and you look at them and go, really? Really? I thought I was meant to feel good about myself. But let me just warn you, it gets worse. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 and verse 6 make it very clear to us that one day when we die, when, when we die or when Jesus returns, whichever comes first, we will stand before God, all of our lives laid bare. Imagine a heavenly courtroom. The charge, sin. The verdict, guilty. We will be judged by God, and God, unlike us, is righteous. He is a righteous judge, a righteous and just judge. He cannot overlook the things that we do. That would make him unrighteous. That would make him not just, unjust. He is a righteous, just judge. And, verse 6, he will punish us with his wrath. Now, wrath is a word that we don't use very often uh, anymore, but it simply just means anger. Anger, But it's not an unrighteous anger, it's a righteous anger. What's the picture we're being portrayed for us here? All of us are unrighteous, none of us is good. When we die, we'll be judged for the way that we live and we will be condemned. We will face God's punishment. Now how do you find that? What do you make of that? It's confronting, isn't it? I hope it's confronting, I hope so. Um, But I want to point out a few reasons why it's particularly difficult. I reckon the reason it's particularly hard, maybe for many of us to hear, is it's such a different way um, of presenting the reality of our lives than we think. You know, it, it says something about us that we don't think about us. 
And it also potentially says something about us that you've never considered Christianity says about us. You see, when we think about what makes someone good or what makes someone righteous, or alternatively, what makes someone bad or unrighteous, what do we think about? Well, 99% of the time, we use those terms, that sort of clarification, to talk about how we treat other people. Do you know what I mean? You may use it to talk about treating animals or uh, the environment, certainly. But all the time, when you think, oh, that's a good guy or a good girl, you know, that's a nice girl, a nice girl, whatever, or I don't like that person, what is it? It's because of their behaviour, because of the way that they treat you. You know what I mean? That's how we clarify, classify um, righteousness, goodness. But that is not what the Bible does. The Bible clarifies, classifies defines righteousness not in our behaviour towards people, but in our behaviour towards God. God has made us for a relationship with him, but all of us have said, no, no. And that's what sin is. The way that we treat one another, the way we mistreat one another, those things are symptoms of the heart problem. Let me illustrate this for you. I want you to imagine when you're growing up, you've got a, um, a little sister, let's say, uh, and it's her birthday. Now, she's out playing sport, and your dad, has, um, he's a great baker, you know, and he's decided, I'm going to make her a cake. And this cake is like a Barbie, My Little Pony, Pokemon cake. It's just amazing. They've got bigger laughs at 8.30, but that's okay. An amazing cake. This is a dream cake for your little sister. Now, your dad goes to get these car keys. You know, your sister's out playing netball or whatever, and so he says, listen, oi, I'm about to go get your sis. Don't touch the cake. Oi, Dad, I'm not touching that. Don't touch the I won't touch it. Don't touch the cake. I won't. But the minute he goes to his car, drives off, you poke your head out the window, cake. And in one fell swoop like a vulture, you come in and you swallow, you inhale the cake, all of it, delicious. Now here's the question, who have you treated unfairly? Who have you mistreated? Well, firstly, your sister. It's her birthday cake. You jerk. How dare you? It was made for her to enjoy. You mistreated her. But not primarily. Who have you primarily wronged? Your father. Why? Because he created the cake. And as, a virtue, as, as, as an overflow of his creation of the cake, that gives him the right to determine how, when and why it is eaten. How it is eaten, when it is eaten, and who will eat it. See, my friends, when we mistreat each other, when we act in ways that are selfish or proud or uh, uh, unloving towards one another, we think... Or when someone treats, treats us that way, we think it's all about us. But God says, no, no, there's something else going on. These things are symptoms of a heart which has rejected God, that has sinned against God. A sin and punishment that is coming, that is absolutely just and righteous. Now, um, there's no doubt about it that that is a dark picture. Uh, and it's one um, that, that many of us find very difficult. And, and I want to say to you, just as Phil spoke earlier about the Life series coming up, if that's something that you find, if what you've just heard is intriguing or confronting or confusing, I'd love to, to meet you at the Life series, to you know, invite you to come along and, uh, and check out um, what Christianity continues to say about people. It's an enormously profound and powerful thing. It's something that I want to encourage you uh, to do. But what I want to do now is, is get you to think about how God responds to the darkness that has engulfed the world as a result of our rejection of him. 
You see, it is a very dark picture, but it's absolutely critical that we see it. Because if we do not see the darkness, the reality of life, the reality of our existence, the reality of how we treat God, then that means we will never, ever, ever be able to grasp hold of what happens next. And you see, what happens next as a result of that darkness in the Bible is the most glorious, the most powerful, the most earth-shatteringly, life-transforming truth that you could ever imagine. And you see it in verse 21 of our reading. Verse 21 of our reading, God, he does the clutch and he brings it down to reverse. That's right. And he does a U-turn. The Apostle Paul here in Romans on what we're reading. And we see this U-turn take place in verse 21 with just two beautiful words. But now. Now what does that mean? Hold on. All these things I've just said. Sin. Wrath. Justice. But now, what is he right? Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness of God, remember, what did that mean? It meant that God must punish justly. He is perfect, pure, upright. He must punish. That is what the righteousness of God demands of God. But that is not the only dimension of God's righteousness that is on display in the Bible. There is another powerful dimension of the righteousness of God that has been overlooked and forgotten all the way throughout the Old Testament, forgotten and pushed to the side, and yet here we see stunningly on display. What is it? God's righteousness is not only found in his being just, it's found in his being merciful. And what that means is that God does not just desire to punish and and pour out wrath upon sin. He's not only angry at sin, although he is. He also desires to justify those who deserve justice. And so what did he do? Well, verse 25 has this snapshot, almost if you like, of the entire message of the Bible in one sentence. Listen to this. Check this. Don't miss this bit. Verse 25. God presented Christ. Press pause. God presented Christ. Presented means put on display publicly. He is the one who put, it's not a secret what happened here. But more than that, what you're about to read, what this means is, is not an accident. It's not a fluke. It's not something that just happened. Ah, what a mistake. No, no, no. God is in sovereign control of all of it. What did he do? God presented Christ, Jesus Christ, his eternal son, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Jesus died. He died at the will of his father. He died. And as he died, he took your sin on his soul and through his death absorbed the wrath of God reserved for you, deserved by you. Why? So we can be forgiven. We can be justified. We can be made righteous. The punishment that makes us unrighteous, sorry, the punishment for the sin that has made us unrighteousness is poured out on Jesus so we can stand before God in the, in the heavenly courtroom, in the dock, not guilty, not condemned. Why? Because Jesus has paid it all. My friends, the consequences of this are beyond Imagination. 
Only God could have come up with this. And this is one of the great powerful truths of the gospel. The more and more you read it and immerse yourself in it, the more and more you become fully aware, only God could have done this. This is not of man. Look at verse 22 onwards. What are the consequences of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus? Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. No difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've seen, no matter what you've done, you are all in the same boat. At one point, spiritually dead. But now, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. God's justice satisfied, righteousness given to us. We take on the righteousness of Jesus as he takes on our sin. So what does God show us? Well, the word that I want you to focus in here is that one in verse 24. Instead of showing us wrath, God has shown us grace. Now, listen. I just heard a few yawns, so I thought I'd clap. Listen, grace, not just a nice sounding word. It is a beautiful sounding word. But it's nothing compared to its meaning. See, grace means generosity. You're like, oh, okay. No, no, no. It's more than that. When we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about undeserved, overflowing, relentless, continuous, eternal, loving generosity towards people who deserve the opposite. And it's very difficult for us to get our heads around that because we don't experience it. We don't give it, we don't receive it. So let me just try and illustrate it. And even this illustration, as extreme as it is, is nothing but a you know, paltry crumb. Imagine you go home today and you get there and to your horror you find your house has been robbed. Um, but you've caught the person in the act. What are you right to do? What are you allowed to do? What should you do? What do they deserve? Triple O. Punishment. Cops. But instead, you see this person rifling through your drawers and you love them. You love them. So as they look in horror, worried what you're going to do, you march up to your cupboard, you open it up and you take out more bags. You put them out. Zip. Oi, here's more. By the way, you missed my grandmother's jewellery. It's over here. Take it there. There's a safe behind the painting. You know, go. You know, take that there. there. Actually, you know what? Stuff this. Take it all. But... Give me your bank account details. I want to set up a bank account transfer between you and I, continually, a withdrawal, just forever and ever. Now, you would never do that. Why? Because what do they deserve? Punishment. They deserve it. It's righteous that they deserve it. It harms you to overlook it. So what do you call that? That's grace. But now imagine that instead of that person being a robber, they're a murderer. Instead of robbing you, you come home to find that they've killed everyone you love the most. And now imagine that instead of opening up bags to give them more stuff and setting up a bank transfer, you actually say to them, the person you killed, you can have their bed. You can have their place at the table. Here's my last name, you can have it too. You're in my family. And when the cops come, I'll say that I did it. Would that ever happen? Why? It's crazy, isn't it? I had another word for it. It would be amazing. Grace. 
a saved wretch like me. Grace changes everything. What we see here is God's heart on display, the heart of God towards sinful people. God shows you grace by pouring out the punishment you deserve on Jesus. And it's grace that makes Christianity unique. And you, you need to grab hold of this because it's even possible that you haven't understood Christianity so you don't see grace in Christianity. You see, every religion in the world, what is it that bonds them together? Oi, there's all diverse and you know, beautiful people in every religion. Lots, don't mishear me here. But listen, how do they answer the question, what does God want from us? Every single religion in the world answers that question with, God wants me to dot, dot, dot. Dress this way, dress that way. Grow your hair, cut your hair. Um, pour water on your head, jump in a whole thing of water. Drink that water, don't drink that. Do this, do that. Go to this, no, go to that. Go to that building, no, go to this building. Even people within Christendom obviously can do that. Get baptised, don't get baptised. But, but, you know, take communion, don't take communion. Get confirmed, do this, do this, do this. And what's the big picture? If you do all the right things in God, the gods, the goddesses, the spirits, man, they all go, tick, you're in. You are acceptable to me by virtue of what you have done. But grace says no. 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 That is not how God feels. It's not how he acts. It's not what he's done. It couldn't possibly work that way because you are far worse than you possibly imagine. The damage has been done. You ever try to piece back together a a window or a mirror when it's been smashed? Forget about it. It's done. You cannot earn your way to heaven by works and by, by, by virtue of behavior, by religiosity, by ritual, by What does grace tell us? Grace tells us very, very clearly, my friends. Don't miss this. It tells us that God offers you salvation not by virtue of what you do, but by virtue of what Jesus has done. It's all about Jesus, not you. It's all about him. He has shown you love not because you deserve it. Now get your head around this. What does that mean about Jesus' death? Why did Jesus die? Jesus died not because you're such a good person. Now, this confused me. I I grew up in a Christian family, but I was not a Christian, and this was the thing that, that I did not understand. Why did Jesus die? He did not die because you're a good person. Now, check this bit out. He did not die in spite of you being a bad person. Why did Jesus die? He died because you're a bad person. That's why he did it. Now, what does that mean about your sinfulness? It does not disqualify you from God's kingdom. It doesn't disqualify you from being in a relationship with God. Your sinfulness qualifies you for receiving God's grace. It's not a badge of honor. Don't mishear me. But it doesn't disqualify, it qualifies. You see that difference? Now, um, there's no doubt about it that uh, these are very you know, huge, enormous truths. Romans 3 is famous for it, of course. But I want to say, um, even though we've, we've seen enormous aspects of God's generosity on display here, it's not the end of it. I want you to look at verse 22. 
This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So how do we respond to the grace that God gives us? We respond through faith. However, faith, and that word means trust or reliance, faith is also something that can get us unstuck because when we hear that, when we read that, it's very common for us to think, ah, okay. So when you say not by works, you just mean not by every other work, but faith is the thing that I've got to do. So it's kind of like a quid pro pro. God does 50%, Jesus does that, um, and I do another 50%. Or maybe you're not that arrogant. Maybe you go, oh, God does 99%. All I do is just the 1% over here. But my friends, that is not what the passage is saying. That is not how the Bible talks about faith. That is not why you're a Christian. If you are indeed a Christian here today, it is not by virtue of your intelligence, your morality, your spirituality, your ability to just see what no one else can see. It is not about you. What is faith? Where does it come from? Ephesians 2, I'll just check it on the screen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Jesus puts it this way. John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. God offers the invitation to all who come and then he gives the power to those he chooses to come. What does this mean? Faith is not a work. You are not a Christian because you are smarter than everyone else. You know that. You're not a Christian because you've worked it out and those dummies out there are still going away. No, 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 no. If it was left to you, if it was left to me, none of us would be Christians. Faith is a gift of God that he turns on through grace. It's confusing though, isn't it? (laughs) Because we don't think of it that way when we become a Christian. If you become a Christian, if you remember when you became a Christian, you think it's all about you. Ah, I've become... But no, no, as you read the Bible, you realize, no, no, even that, even, even, even the, the, the reliance and the trust we have in God, even that is from God. And that makes perfect sense. Romans 3, what does it tell us about ourselves? No one is righteous. No one seeks God. It doesn't then have an asterisk and say, no one seeks God, except you Christians and you've done it. No, no, no. Grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift of faith. Salvation is all God's idea. It's all about him. Now, um, these are enormous truths, um, life and death issues to think about. Um, and, and as I said, um, it's, it's a good thing for us, even if confused or disagreeing, uh, to, to just ask questions, look into it more and more. But what I want to do now um, is I, I want to just get those sort of bits of truth, you know, what God says about you, what he says about expectations here, and piece them together. And, and, and I want to do that by asking you a question. Okay, If all of this is true which I believe it is, which many of you believe it is as well. Um, And if you believe indeed that the Bible is the word of God, a living document, a breathing document, God-inspired, written with you in mind, not about you, about God, but for you to read. God knows that you're reading it right now. Here's the question. Why does God want you to know this stuff? It's a good question to ask the Bible, isn't it? What is it that God is motivated by in teaching us and telling us these things? What is God seeking to produce within you as a response to these truths that we've learned? Well, I, I want to offer to you that I think, um, I think there is a, a, a response which all of us who are Christians should share. That's dangerous because um, what I'm going to offer isn't in the Bible. So I want to say, you can disagree with me, absolutely. 
Um, but I do want to say, I believe there is a response to these truths that, that God is pointing us towards. But let me just give you a bit of a trigger for it, I guess. It is a bit, well, surprising. It's not confronting, but it's a bit surprising. And so I, I want you to just, just hear it first and then let me explain it. How does God want us to respond to these glorious eternal truths? With optimism. Optimism. Now, why is that surprising? Because we think optimism is for idiots. I do, don't you? No, no, no. What do we think of optimism? Glass half full kind of thinking. Well, it can be a very positive trait. Well, it's good to be an optimist. But also within our society, and I've got to say our vibe in general when we meet people, um, there's often a a mindset of thinking um, that the optimist is somehow unhinged and detached from reality. You know, like, like a Bulldogs fan thinking they're going to win the tournament, you know? Or like a Souths fan thinking, no, I could go. No, like living in a war zone and hearing the bombs you know, rain down around you and thinking that it's thunder. Oh, this must be raining today. Boom, boom, boom. You know, we think oh, optimism is just this sort of detachment from reality. Oh, everything's going to turn out for the best. Oh, she'll be right. But I want to say to you that that is not what Christian optimism is, and that's not what I mean. Now, the word optimism itself actually has quite a, a good meaning for us to hold on. Optimism, and let me read this for you. Optimism means this um, hopefulness and confidence about the future or success. I want to say to you, optimism in general is a dead end. Why? Because naturally, we put our hope and our confidence in ourselves, and that will never lead anywhere. But Christian optimism, Christian optimism is not hopefulness and confidence about ourselves or about anyone else, but about... God. It's the overflow of trusting that God will always keep his promises, will always do what he says he will do, that his speaking is his doing. So what is it that he has promised you? Dear friend, if you are a Christian here this morning, what is it that God has promised you? He's promised to show you Grace. And grace is not a one-off gift that you get once, shove in your back pocket, and then use again on your trip to heaven. Grace is a gift that continues to be given continually, relentlessly, powerfully, profoundly for the rest of your life. And I want to say that grace gives you a new set of glasses upon which to view um, So hold on, I'm getting a word from the Lord. Let me. <laughs> I need to go to an op. Did you all hear that? Okay, thank goodness. Otherwise, you think I'm gone berserk. But nonetheless, where was I? A new set of to think about and to view your life. Now, two parts in particular: the past um, and the future. What does grace tell you about your past and your future? This is what it means. Now, Christian, hold on to this. I want you to imagine you're, you're, you're in a bathtub, okay, and the tap is on. And I want you to imagine just this tap filling up with water. Listen, what, is, what does grace mean for the future and the past? Grace means that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, that God has accepted you fully and finally, continuously, unreservedly, eternally, 
that you are going to heaven. Your salvation is utterly secure. It's set in stone. How do you know that? Because it's not based on what you do for God. It's not based on your fluctuating performance, on your attempts at religiosity, spirituality, goodness, kindness. It's not based on your virtues and success. It's solid and firm because it's based on what God has done for you through Jesus. You can live in assurance and confidence. You can bathe in assurance and confidence. Rest in utter solid confidence that if your trust is in Jesus, you know where you're going. Your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the beginning of the creation of the world and it will remain there until this world is thousands of years past. God's plan, provision and promise, they never fail. Your salvation is utterly, unshakably secure. Your sin is no more. And that, my dear friends, is how you know whether you're a Christian. How do you know if you're a Christian? The chief evidence Do you trust Jesus? If you do, you are a Christian. Do you trust Jesus or yourself? How do you know that? We'll think about that more next week. But in your heart of hearts right now, do you trust Jesus? And what does that mean about your past? That means no matter where you've been, what you've done, how you've done, it has been forgiven. That means when, when the devil comes in and whispers into your ear about your unlovabilityness, about the guilt and shame that can hold on to you, when you're captured by remorse of sins of yesterday, yesteryear, yesterdecade, the constant reminder of I've done too much, I've gone too far. Christ died for you. He reigns and rules for you. And he will never let you go. He promises you are forgiven. And this, my dear friends, transforms how we understand and live in the present. I've only got a couple of minutes now, but in your Bible, just flick over to Romans 8 for me. Romans 8. I just want to read two verses. Um, for many of us, our favourite verses indeed, aren't they? Romans 8, 28, 29. Um, and I want to show you and apply to you how these truths transform our, our present, the life that we live now. And we know, verse 28, chapter 8, and we know that in all things, what's all things? Everything, good, bad, God works for the good of those who love him. God is 100% for you, 100% of the time. In all and every situation, God is determined to do you good. There is no situation he's determined to do you bad. He does not nap, he does not snooze, he doesn't have a smoko, he doesn't go, he's not absent, he is here, he's at work, he's in the middle of it in every situation. The question is, what is good? Verse 29. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Goodness to God is not a million dollars. It's not a disease-free life. Goodness to God is that you become like Jesus, that you trust God like Jesus, that you are holy and obedient like Jesus, that you love God like Jesus, that you immerse yourself in, in God's love like Jesus. What does that mean? 
There is no situation in your life where God is not present working for your good. Everything that happens in the life of the Christian is poured towards you becoming like Jesus. Suffering, pain, heartache, misery. Breakdown, heartache. The diagnosis, the devastation, divorce, stress, worry, concern, even death. As we bury those we love, as we face it ourselves. Yet grace tells us God is at work for our good. He's never absent. And you see, knowing that changes everything, doesn't it? Do you see how astonishing that is for your life? It means you can persevere. Because perseverance is not based on how good you are, how much you love God. Your perseverance is based on Jesus' heart for you. The relentless love poured out towards you. When we first moved to the Central Coast, um, we'd been living in the UK for a few years, and we hadn't been to a beach for ages for a very simple reason. The beaches in the UK, pff, horrible, horrible. Phil, correct? That's why he lives here, you know? He's moved over. Don't mention the cricket. That's why. So when a bunch of little kids, we arrived, we started going to the beach, and um, my kids and their father were a bit nervous, a bit scared, okay? Um, one in particular, Jesse, he was three at the time, and every time he'd come to the beach, he would cling to my hand. He'd grab it, you know, and he'd put his toe in, and he wouldn't let go the whole time. And, and he'd, he'd continue to do so, no matter what happened. He'd just keep holding on to my hand, you know, um, as the water got higher and higher. But after a minute or two, something would begin to happen to the grip. What is it? Well, he's a toddler, and that meant his grip, as hard as he tried... It kept slipping. It was weak. It wasn't enough to hold on to me. It kept falling apart, you know. He wanted to hold on, but it just fell. But I was determined to never let him go. So I held on to him, which meant that even as he slipped, he stayed. Even as he fell, he remained. My dear friends, bring your troubles to God. Rest in God. Trust in God. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to invite up um, some of the band now who are going to uh, actually give us a, a moment of time to be able to reflect on what we've been thinking about and what that means for our lives uh, by singing a song. The lyrics will be on the screen. Stay, with, stay seated. Don't sing along loudly. Um, but take this time actually to just reflect on on the things that we've learned. Then I'm going to come up after that, I'm going to pray, and we'll sing together as well. Um, But I'm going to hand over to these guys now. Thanks, Trevor.